I would love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8, if you have that handy, and as well, the sermon notes you have available to you uh, in, the, in the bulletin, I know will be a help to you as well. Today, of course, we come to our fourth Sunday of Advent, and that also means the conclusion of this year's Advent series. You are familiar, if you worship with us regularly, that each year we take four weeks to preach a, an Advent series that corresponds to the play that we produce, which in this, care, this case was last weekend. About 450 of y'all came and, and enjoyed that and thought together about how God is at work even now to take the message of Jesus one person at a time to somebody else and has been doing that for 2,000 years. Amazing. So our theme, of course, the gospel to the ends of the earth and specifically last week's play, the word spreads. Now, here's what we get to do today. Um, for one, I get to uh, step with you into the book of Acts and look at a, a little story that's just nestled here. We'll do that. And then we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament because they're connected, these two parts. And I'll show you how in just a moment. As we come to God's word, though, I, I, I want to say a word to all of us. Uh, we head into the week, you know, uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, family things, the culmination that, toward which all these weeks of Advent have been, been focusing. And I am, I am always so aware that uh, our church family, as with a culture around us, for some of us, this is the best time of the year. You sit down and you say, you just can't get any better than this. Look at this family and friends and lights and bells and whistles and snow or not, depending on what you all think. But for a lot of other people, it isn't necessarily the happiest time of the year. For some, it's a season where we remember hurts and losses. For some, there'll be an empty place at the table this year from it compared to a year ago. Uh, all kinds of other experiences of health or loss of health, relationships broken or troubled, kids, all kinds of things that cause people to, to reflect at a holiday and say, man, I wish this, or I regret that, or I miss so-and-so. I, I, I know. And we bring all of those to Christmas, don't we? And it's my hope that the things that we're going to look at today will, will bring hope and encouragement to all of us, whatever those circumstances are. That's really what I want to do, okay? So I'd, I'd like to pray and ask God's help in that, and ultimately that kind of help and hope comes from him. So join me, please, as we pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word together. We, we, we consider that a privilege every time we do it. And we count on your work. Oh, we're desperate for the work of the Spirit of God to enliven the, the, the written word of God to our hearts, that we would hear it and understand it and love it and love the God here presented and then be changed by that message. So, Father, would you do your work among us today? It's a work that only you can do. We, we can only do so much to change anybody. But, our Father, our lives are in your hands. We live before you. So meet us here today in the preaching of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look with me at your sermon notes to the section called Today's Texts, I want to say just a, a few things about what we're talking about and why I mentioned here under this heading, the heart of Christmas is the gospel. It really is. 
not so much all the other trappings that we spend more of our time thinking about and which I love, but really the heart of the Christmas is is the story of Jesus, Uh, his perfect life, his atoning death, and triumphant resurrection from the dead. Uh, Those elements, the gospel, it's really the heart of Christmas. And I believe that the more you understand the gospel, the more you are able to appreciate the richness of Christmas despite your circumstances, okay? Christmas is not only to be enjoyed when life is at its best, but the more we understand the gospel, I think the more we understand and love what Christmas is all about. Now, in the book of Acts, if you have that open in front of you, perhaps if you have a Bible hand or, a, or the app open or whatever that is, we're coming to Acts chapter 8 and just a little bit of an introduction here to this section. This is a place of transition in the book of Acts, okay? In, in what has happened already, uh, Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, ascended to heaven. Now, at the beginning, Peter, James, and John, my goodness sakes, those guys preached. Uh, the Holy Spirit came in a whole new way on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And, and through some early sermons, a whole bunch of people came to faith, okay? So you read Acts chapter 3, my goodness sakes, 3,000 people come to Christ. Can you imagine? And then you step into chapter 4, and the word continues to spread, and it says 5,000. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. Well, they're all hanging out in Jerusalem. And I, I guess I, I don't want to read too much into it, but I think they're kind of doing what sometimes Christians do and say, hey, let's just all buy houses on this cul-de-sac. And we can just all kind of hang out with other nice people and watch each other's kids. Wonderful, if that's what you have. But, but back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had different instructions. He didn't say hang out here like it's a, you know, a Christian slumber party. He said, no, take the gospel, yes, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus told them to do. And so they're all kind of in Jerusalem, but until Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, as it begins, my goodness sakes, persecution arises. And it's not all fun and games anymore. And it says the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said they should. And in verse 4, they, they're scattered and they go about preaching the word of God. So there's, there's a shift taking place from, from kind of like a Jerusalem-centric focus, and, and now the gospel's going forward. But I don't want you to miss the means by which God does that. And that means is, is persecution, and it's painful. And I'm looking at my next little bullet point. I'll come back uh, to the... Uh, some other elements here in a moment, but, but we're going to see that God's timing is perfect in the little vignette we're going to read, that God's timing is perfect. And I say all of that, just, just please understand, um, to remind all of us that God is at work even today through circumstances that are hard. Just like back then, God used persecution to advance the gospel. So today, very often, God uses difficult things in the lives of his people to, to, for gospel good. Now, it's, it's a little easier in this text because we see how it all buttons together. Okay, We usually don't, do we? We don't see how it all fits together. We can't make sense of it. But nonetheless, God is at work. So I'm going to read the text uh, under this heading as I have it in front of you there. God himself oversees the mission of the church. So Philip is a, is a great guy. and He's got an assignment here. So Acts chapter 8 starting verse 26, all right? God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and hearing him reading Isaiah the prophet, asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And I'll stop reading right there. Wow, what a moment. What a moment. Um, I, I find it very fascinating. Often in our settings, as we think about times to, to tell someone about Jesus or say a word about the faith that we have, um, it usually doesn't come with someone saying, hey, I have a question for you. You want to just tell me about Jesus? It usually doesn't happen like that. Um, it, this is a very unusual circumstance. Certainly, God has his hand in this. And as I mentioned, God's fingerprints are all over it. Now, verse 26 and verse 29 say specifically that God was directing. It says, an angel of the Lord said, and then the Spirit said. Those kinds of phrases in the Bible were never really told exactly what that looked like. So did Philip see an angel show up, or was it like a voice? We really don't know what that was about, other than Philip was very clear, this is the hand of God directing me. But clearly, God is, is guiding here. God himself overseeing the mission of the church. Now, a couple things about the person involved and the, the setting. So there's this Ethiopian guy who is a long way from home. If you do the math, uh, from modern-day Israel down to Ethiopia, they're on the, the east side of Africa. You'd have to go through uh, Egypt and what we would today call Sudan, and then you get down to Ethiopia. As the crow flies, it's about 1,500 miles. How about that? Now, of course, he's not a crow, so probably going by chariot it would be a little more than 1,500 miles. And I suspect he's traveling with an entourage. I mean, think about it. This guy's I mean, he's somebody. He's a muckety-muck in charge of all the money. You think that, that the queen of the Ethiopians was going to let this guy take a several-month trip, probably, unguarded? Oh, no, he's got, he's got a posse, he, I suspect. He's got people. He's got people. And I can just imagine as Philip comes on over, somebody's going, excuse me, could I see your ID or something? Um, you just waltz up there to this guy and say, hey, let's talk. Yeah, I don't know about that. But this guy, is, he's been on a journey. I do not know how far uh, chariots, things like that, go in a day. But I just want you to think about the journey he's on. 1,500 miles. That's here to, uh, right about, almost exactly, to Fargo, uh, North Dakota. Did you know that? It is. And 3,000 miles will get you to New York City, I think, if you go straight east. 
So this guy is making that big of a trip by chariot round trip. Now, some today would call this person a spiritual person. Sometimes people say that I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Or he's uh, some kind of a religious seeker, something. He does not know Christ as his Savior yet, but he's come 1,500 miles by chariot. It says to worship. It doesn't say to do business. He's come to worship. And on his way back, he's reading the Bible. Well, Old Testament, of course, that's all they had. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah. I'm guessing, because that's from Isaiah 53, I'm guessing he'd been going for a while. Maybe starting at, what, the beginning? Or Isaiah, certainly beginning. I don't know. But he's reading the Bible and, and trying to figure it out. I just say all of that to point out, this is a... This is an evidence of the work of God in someone's life. Uh, Rather than perhaps some of us, um, you know, we're driving our car to the office, Bible's propped up on the steering wheel. It's a very bad idea. Don't do that. Coffee is here, bagel in one hand as you kind of navigate, and you're getting through, and you go, okay, got today's text done. Good. (laughs) Done. Okay, where am I? Uh, uh, uh. He's not doing that, is he? No, he's reading the text, and he's saying, what is this about? What does this mean? That's what he's doing. He's reading the Bible better than maybe many of us on a busy day. What is this about? What does this mean? Who's being spoken of here? And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's clear as my fourth little bullet point there on the backside of your sermon note sheet. I, I, I think that the reason he's captured by the prophet Isaiah is God is at work in him without him even knowing it. See? God does this. Some of you probably have had that experience. We're looking back. You saw God preparing you to, to hear spiritual truth or maybe to prepare you for some other thing in life. Sometimes people think about that with job changes or so on. We, we see God's preparation. It's very clear here. This is an interesting guy. He's spiritually awake, not knowing Jesus yet. And God is at work in his life. I'm so glad that this kind of thing, I think, still happens today. I count on this. Which, may I just say, is a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us that no one comes to faith in Christ because you're such an amazing storyteller of the story of Jesus. Nobody does. You will never argue anybody into the kingdom of God. This will not happen. Okay? You might say, well, I studied apologetics. and I, oh, Wonderful. You should do that. I read some good books. I love books. You know that. I read some good books on this. Hopefully, you know, you know how to communicate the story of Jesus. Wonderful. I'm just saying this. No one comes to Christ apart from the work of God in that person, no matter how slick you are. Okay? So even as you prepare yourself to talk to other people about issues of faith, don't you get so high and mighty that you think it's all up to you. It's not. Only God can grab that heart and turn that heart to him. So you need him. You do. By the way, somebody may be here today where God is already doing that to you, and that's why you're in the room. Wouldn't that be interesting? That even now God has prepared your heart to hear the story of Jesus. I think, he, I think God still does this today. Now, I want to go to the part about, about Philip. Uh, he comes up. He runs over to join the chariot. I'm guessing that because I'm guessing that that's because the chariot is moving, and he asks a wonderful question. Uh, do you hear, do you understand what you're, what you're reading? I'm betting that Philip was greatly relieved when he ran over. He's not been prepared, uh, by this with specifics. He just knows he's on a mission for God. 
So he shows up and overhears the guy reading, I, I imagine, and hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. I'm, I bet he's thinking, good night. I'm glad he wasn't reading Cicero. I'd be in deep trouble. So prophet Isaiah, that I can do. He's a good Jewish guy. I can handle that. Here's the prophet Isaiah and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, come on up and sit down. Tell me all about it. And he does. Now, Philip then in verse 35 does some very good things, okay? There are three listed here. Uh, I I probably could have added a fourth, but I took it uh, maybe inherent in number one. Philip opened his mouth, but even before that, what did he do? He listened, didn't he? He did. He listened. That's how he knew what the guy was talking about or reading. He listens. Then I put it in this order. He opens his mouth and he starts where the guy is and he points him to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I would recommend that as a good practice. You you start by listening to somebody, and then rather than saying, oh, you know what, I really shouldn't talk about this. I'm really not that good with words, and I haven't been to seminary. I know somebody else you really should talk to about all your questions and then jump out of the chariot. Doesn't do that. He, He opens his mouth, he starts right where that person is, and he speaks to him about Jesus, tells him the good news. I think that's a really good thing. I commend that. But I have it all under the heading, God himself oversees the mission of the church. And I, I, just, I just want to press that, pedal to the metal, if you will, to, to drive that into your mind. Uh, we talk about the mission of the church and our part in it. And indeed, we have a significant part, taking the gospel to our community, other parts of the world, 100%. But let's remember that it is God's work first. It's his work first. I had this uh, conversation. Some of you know I'm involved with the European Leadership Forum, which helps to train uh, church leaders uh, primarily in the continent of Europe. And I get to work with one little group of that. And talking to uh, some, some of our group back in October, we were talking about this in particular because sometimes people get, they get all worried because um, sometimes we say, well, I don't have the right material for that. I'm meeting with so-and-so. Uh, what do you have for the best discipleship material, the best evangelist? I don't have any good tracks. How can I share the gospel? I don't have any good tracks. Um, you know, there's a pretty good one right here. Uh, it's called the Bible. I'm not discounting good material or good tracks or a tract. If you kind of fallen out of vogue these days, it's a little pamphlet that explains something about Jesus. That's the idea behind it. It used to be really popular. You'd leave them different places, and people would either love it or hate it. A um, little piece of paper that says something about Jesus. Um, but sometimes we forget um, every, everything other than the Word of God. Did you hear me? Everything other than the Word of God probably falls short. Whether it's a book or a pamphlet or somebody's curriculum, something wrong with all of it. So if you sit there and say, well, I can't do that because I don't have the right material. Oh, my friend. You're missing out. We had that conversation with the folks in the European Leadership Forum because a couple of them were asking that question of those of us who were leading the group. Well, what would you recommend? And one of them said, I'm in this part of Africa. We can't get anything down here. How do I disciple people? And I said, guess what? Maybe you should just use the Bible. I don't mean that to put him down. He was just thinking, all you guys are going to order stuff by Amazon. I can't. I'm in this place. It'll get here in about six months, you know, by Pony Express. How can I disciple anybody? And I said, man, you know what? I think forget all about the other material. Go straight to the word of God. Apparently that works. And so here, he hears where he's at. He's reading the Bible, Isaiah 53, and he tells him about Jesus right here from the Bible. 
What a cool idea. I love that. God himself oversees the mission of the church. He uses us. Yes, he does. I'm glad for that. But if anything good is going to happen, it will be his work. So that little part is a narrative section from the book of Acts talking about the progress of the gospel. Today, I want to press into the words that were being read by this Ethiopian man and what Philip said to him, okay? So to do that, I want to go back to the same text that they're reading in this chariot, back to Isaiah 53. If you want to head back there with me, if you have a Bible in front of you, that'd be great. Uh, And in fact, I'm going to start with the latter few verses of Isaiah 52, because I think together uh, these portions form what is often called the song of the suffering servant. And it's a, it's a telling about Jesus. It's a poem, so to speak, a prophecy about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus was to come. Very hard to read this and not think of Christ, which, of course, Philip was doing and the Ethiopian man. So I'm going to start reading Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13, down through chapter 53, verse 12. Okay, so let's hear God's word again, the song of the suffering servant that this Ethiopian man was reading hundreds of years later. Here it is. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Indeed, about whom does the prophet speak? Himself or someone else? So the question is asked hundreds of years later. Now, I want to step into the chariot, so to speak, with you and reflect on the answer that Philip gave, though we do not know all the specifics. We know that he started with this text. Portions of it show up in Acts chapter 8. And what I have done here, moving from, the, uh, from a dialogue to a kind of a theological expression, I want to identify four theological words, not so much that you'd memorize them, though that's fine, but so that you would think about the, the meaning behind them that springs from Isaiah 53, okay? So these four key words, I think, help us understand the text, and it is... It is my firm conviction that Philip touched on some of this at least, or that man would never have been saved. Okay? So, word number one, substitution. Substitution. And here's the brief explanation. Oh, please get this. The message of the Bible is that Jesus died in our place. We were the ones who deserved a death like that. Jesus died in our place. He was the only one who could have. He lived a perfect life. How are you doing with that? Sometimes people say, because they haven't thought through very much, I'll just pay for my own. And dear friend, you aren't qualified. Not at all. Uh, you uh, who, and I who have sinned, we've done wrong. We're not qualified to pay for anybody's sin certainly not our own, and certainly nobody else's. Jesus, the only perfect one, the only perfect Lamb of God, was the only one uniquely qualified to to be a, a perfect sacrifice. And substitution tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't paying for his own sin. He had none. He was paying for the sin and rebellion of heart for you and for me. Do you you see this? Now, as you look at the text, I want you to notice the repetition of the word starting in verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he's pierced for our transgressions, our iniquities. Into verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The text repeats it again and again and elsewhere. He is there in our place the Lamb of God who came to the earth for this reason, to to, to stand in for us, so to speak, in being a sin bearer. 
Now, I reference a couple of things here as you look at your sermon notes. First Peter 2.24, in each case here, I'll be going to New Testament as well. Peter, of course, a contemporary of Jesus, one of the followers of Christ, he says in 1 Peter 2.24, writing after Jesus came and died on the cross, rose from the dead, he says, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Peter identifies the same thing as this text. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Genesis 22 is a story of substitution as well. Uh, some of us are maybe familiar with the story about how God tested Abraham in asking him, telling him to sacrifice his only son, Yitzhak, Isaac, his only son, the son he loved, the son of promise. And Abraham was in the process of obeying that awful moment. And there, at the last minute, by God's provision, a ram was caught in a thicket. The ram then was substituted for Isaac on that altar. So some, something else in our place. That's what, was, that's what Jesus was doing. When he died on the cross, he was suffering and dying in your place, your sin upon his shoulders. So substitution is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus died in my place, in your place. Substitution, a second theological word, is the word redemption. Redemption or to redeem. We think about that in some cases even today. We're redeeming something. We, we're turning it in. We're getting paid for something. Some transaction is, being, take, is taking place here. Jesus paid the price that only he could pay. There's a price to be paid. Something is redeemed. In this case, you and me. We're redeemed. And again, I would point you to those same verses in four, verses 4, 5, and 6 in Isaiah 53. Um, it's describing this process of redemption. The Lord has laid on him, verse 6, the iniquity, that, that the price for our sin, the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 describes Christ as our sin bearer. He shall bear their iniquities. Again, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. It's, it's something is being redeemed here. A price is being paid. And again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, uh, verses you may, you may be familiar with as well, where Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were redeemed, he says, not with money, not enough money to pay for anybody's soul to go to heaven. You're not going to get to the gate of heaven and write a check, are you? Bag of money? How much? Well, guess what? Work all your life. The bag will never be enough. No. No, only the precious blood of Christ could redeem a soul, yours. Only him. Now, the story of Hosea, which I reference here as well, is an Old Testament word picture. That, you know, the Bible so often uses stories, God-ordained stories, true, true stories, to help us understand the gospel. And the story of Hosea um, is, is so hard to read, really. Um, Hosea, a prophet, he's a spokesman for God, and God tells him to marry a specific woman, Gomer, who is going to, who is going to be going astray. She is. And, and she does. And it's, and it's painful and awful, and it rips your heart out. And there's a moment where, as the story unfolds, Gomer, this wayward wife, finds herself further down than she ever thought she would go on a slave market, so to speak. Slave markets were not places of great dignity and value. 
They don't make the human soul feel good. And so she was there. And Hosea, obligated by no one, really, shows up and redeems her. Whether there, was there a bidding war? Oh, I don't know. Five dollars, ten, a hundred. How did it go? He redeemed her from that slave market of sin, as Christ does for us. So substitution, Jesus dies in our place. Redemption, Jesus paid a price that only he could pay. Now, stay with me. All of these connect. Propitiation is the third. That's a word that we don't use very much. Substitute, we use redeem, we use that. Uh, Propitiate, yeah, wow, not so much. Um, Jesus satisfied God's righteous and just demands. That's kind of the idea. I want to think about this with you for a moment. Propitiation, first, as you look at the text, okay? This is the mystery as described in verse 10 and 11. I mean, do you see this? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The word crushing is used back in, in verse 5 as well. He was crushed for our iniquities, which, by the way, what a, what a picture of Jesus on the Mount of Olives where there was an olive press. You're aware that to get olive oil, you crush the olive, don't you? And there in that place of olives being crushed, the Son of God is also crushed. The crushing of his soul as he says, Father, if there's any other way soul crushed. So here, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of the Lord? What do you mean? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Right there is the heart of propitiation. Satisfied. Now, In the last 10 or 20 years, there's been a little bit of theological wrangling over this work of Jesus on the cross. Um, Don't know if you're familiar with some of those wranglings, hopefully not too much so. Uh, You step way out of the Bible for it, and I'm not meaning to jump into the fray too much except for this. Um, There have been a couple of people through the years, most recently, who have described Jesus' death on the cross as some kind of divine child abuse. Pushing back against this idea of propitiation and, and so on, uh, the, not liking the way we historically have described the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, pushing back on phrases like this, the will of the Lord to crush him, this divine child abuse. Asking the question, if you will, what kind of a God requires a blood sacrifice to forgive sins? What kind of a God would do that? May I answer? Here's the answer. A just God. That's the answer. More just than you are or than I am. You and I sometimes think we know justice. We know very little of it. We have been infected by the idea of fairness and with the idea that fairness and justice are equal. They are not. Um, we like to use them interchangeably sometimes. That's not fair. We say, uh-huh, right. Let me talk to you about fairness for a minute. The, the perfect son of God never sinned once in his life. That he would bear your sin in his body on the cross? Talk to me about fairness. Is that fair? No, absolutely not. W- would it be fair then for you and for me, sinners, 
to be covered by the righteousness of Christ and someday get to go to heaven, not because we're any good at all, but because Christ is great? Is that fair? Again, no. No. So, so what is this moment? And without intending to get into too many theological deep weeds here, I want to press on this with your good thought uh, along for the ride When we think about Jesus satisfying God's righteous and just demands, God being just, sometimes people say God had to to meet the standard of of justice. So God had to to be just or meet this standard. And I, I, I don't like to speak of it that way. I think that's got error in it because it describes a standard of justice higher than God himself, a standard to which God must, uh, must somehow attain. Now, there is not a standard of justice above God. If so, whoever made that standard would be God, you see. No, the God of the Bible defines justice. He is the standard of justice. He is perfect justice. So God wasn't meeting a standard of justice external to himself. He is the standard of justice. He gets to define things. So Jesus, when he died on the cross, satisfied God's righteous and just demands. And by the way, even people who struggle with all of these ideas, somehow because we're wired this way, we're made in the image of God, I think there's some visceral things that happen within us. For example, suppose you were a victim of a violent, terrible crime, and the perpetrator was arrested. And it was the day in court. There it was. It finally came, and you're ready because you know the hurt and injury and loss that you have suffered. And so here comes the day. The, 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 the accused is there, and you know, yep, guilty, guilty, guilty. Indeed, jury says guilty. Judge gets the verdict in. Suppose at that moment the judge looks at it and says, you know, found, yeah, boy, you know what? You're such a nice guy. I mean, look at you. Wearing a cool suit and everything. You look so nice. I tell you what, I'm just going to come down, give you a hug and a lollipop, and send you on your way, and we'll just pretend this thing never happened. What would happen in your heart as the victim? Every single one of us would cry out for justice. Give him a hug, sure. No, no. Where is justice in that? So if God the one most offended by sin, were just to say, forget it, I'll just give you a hug. No justice is done. God, being just, the standard of justice, no, would have been unjust if he had just said, forget it. No, full atonement had to be made. Full atonement, as the hymn writer said, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. No, the wrath of God had to be satisfied. By the way, this is what the Apostle Paul was explaining. And I'm going to look at this. I'm going to read it for you. I want you to see that what I'm saying from the Old Testament corresponds to New Testament truth. Okay? So Romans chapter 3, and I'm stepping into the middle of a paragraph with much apology for doing so. In Romans 3, I'm going to start at verse 23, where it says this, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And watch this, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. There it is again. As a satisfaction. By his blood, 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, all of our sin, sin passed that was covered temporarily by the blood of animals, those sins were placed on Jesus on the cross and mine and future sins. When Jesus died on the cross, it was as if all of history, all the sin of history was placed on his shoulders. Imagine, imagine. Propitiation. Jesus satisfied God's righteous and just demands. And then the final word here, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Jesus' death in our place allows many to be accounted righteous. And I'm, I'm still here in Isaiah 53, and you see this in verse 11. By his, by, by his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There it is. He'll make many to be accounted right. Are, 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 are you and I righteous? Are we? Are we? Well, no. No, but we're covered by the righteousness of one who is. See, that's how any of us go to heaven. It isn't because we're so good. It's because Christ is so good. So he is the righteous one. He is the righteous one. I want to I read one more text from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see the term reconcile, reconciliation in the New Testament, and then we'll draw our thoughts to a close here today. I'm in 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to read a broader text than what is represented there on the notes in front of you. I'm going to start at verse 17. I want you to hear, please, hear what's going on in the text. Therefore, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's our word. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's talking about the word going forward the gospel to the ends of the earth. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, specifically, or that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to him, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them because they were paid for at the cross, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What is it? Here's the appeal. We beg you. Or here, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I think the New American Standard says we beg you. It involves emotion and passion. And then he tells the gospel again, for our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So the, 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 the call is in verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So substitution, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. Be, be reconciled to God. May I say that to all of us as well? If, if you, perhaps like the Ethiopian man, have been thinking about this or mulling over religious things or spiritually, you'd maybe call yourself a spiritual person, but you've never come to grips with Christ, for goodness sakes, stop all that today and come to Christ. Trust him as your savior from sin. Exactly what happened in the chariot that morning should take place in your heart right now today where you hear about the work of Jesus and you say, and I believe it. If we'd read the rest of the story, that's what you'd see happen in the chariot. That man who heard it and believed it and came to faith that day. Faith in Jesus. Not just a feeling of faith, a faith specifically pointed to Christ as my sin bearer. So four cool words. 
right? That's what they are. Substitution. He died in my place. He died in yours. Redemption. Jesus paid the price that only he could pay. Propitiation. In the death of Jesus, God's righteousness was satisfied so that we could be forgiven. Reconciliation. That's the result. As we trust Christ, we are reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You've heard that little thing on the radio, right? The reading of the Luke story. And Lucy, I think it is, says, who says it? Linus. It's Linus. Sounds like Lucy. Uh, Linus says it. Um, That's what Christmas is all about. I'm telling you, this is what Christmas is all about, is the work of Christ in the gospel. I hope you know this, Jesus. Go to that bottom part, responding to God's word. I'll leave you right here. Just a call that you would see the divine mystery in the text, Isaiah 53, verse 10, especially. It it pleased the Lord to crush him. Oh, think about this. Charles Wesley clearly was when he wrote this phrase, this, this stanza in the song, And Can It Be? Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. There's mystery. The one who called the stars into being set the universe in motion, dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. And we quickly read that and think auditory. Something's being heard, a sound. No, no, wrong, wrong analogy. This is off of an old-time sailing vessel when they were checking to see how deep the water was. You read about this in the book of Acts, Paul's sailing voyages, where, where somebody would take a weight on a rope and drop it down, see how deep the water is, and go, oh, bumps the bottom at 20, 20 fathoms, coach. And you go a little further, you measure it again, you go 15. Go a little further, you go 10. What's going on here? Yep, we're about to crash. That's what you did. It's what a sailor did. They took soundings. How deep is it? And that's what Wesley's all about. Trying to sound, to measure the depths of God's love. Wesley says, "'Tis mercy, mercy, I'll let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Wow. Now, worship, worship a God of mystery and majesty, all of this coming together in the work of Christ at the cross. Uh, Listen, I don't know how your week will be, I think of many in this congregation, some who've come, information's come on the prayer chain, some not, many not, where this last week changed things. A phone call, a death, a loss, a problem, a crisis in the week ahead. What will your week be like? What will your Christmas be like? I don't know, but I know this, the Savior long foretold who is Jesus will meet us there. He will meet us there. Whatever your Christmas looks like, missing person in a chair, oh, the Lord knows. Worship him. Worship him. I'd like to pray for us. If you'd stand with me, let's close our time in prayer. Father, how we thank you and praise you. You are the God who planned all of this from before time began. How we honor you as your glory is displayed in the gospel. The coming of Jesus, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, this one who will come again. Our Father, until that day, as this mission 
ordained by you goes on. Oh, Father, help us in our part of it, even the living of life this week, that we would live in faith, trusting you, whatever comes, whatever phone calls, arrest our silence. Our Father, meet us even there. Thank you for Jesus, the Savior, long foretold. In the name of Jesus, we are pleased to pray. Amen.